Welcome to Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth, the podcast of Plymouth United Church of Christ. I am Pastor David, and on behalf of the members of this congregation, thank you very much for joining us. May God bless you through these words, and may you know God's love through them. Now, the podcast. The reading, Old Testament reading lesson is from the book of Joel, chapter 2. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has, gi- he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I, the Lord, am your God and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the God call, whom the Lord calls. Our gospel lesson is from the gospel of Luke. Continuing to read uh, through this gospel as we have for the last number of months as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to do his final uh, act, knowing that he's going to be betrayed and crucified and raised from the dead. Uh, So listen now for how God is speaking to you through these words from Luke's gospel. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Here ends the reading. And thanks be to God. We read first from the prophet Joel. Uh, We don't read much 
uh, from Joel in our three-year lectionary cycle, but Joel does show up on Ash Wednesday, that day of repentance, the beginning of Lent, when we start those 40 days of a kind of a penitent period before uh, Easter. And what we read on Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Joel chapter 2, right before what we read today. Uh, and those are words of, you know, call, a call to repentance. And then uh, the second half of Joel is, is kind of God's promise of vindication and rebirth and renewal. Uh, and probably this is coming in the midst of uh, a plague of locusts, perhaps one that's gone on. Uh, either for a number of years or has just been really, uh, really bad that year. So it's this promise that this is not the end. The locust is not the, the final thing. There will be some rebirth and vindication after, uh, after that. Uh, but it's a promise really to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, that the nation will continue. That as a people, they will continue. It's not so much personal promises that, uh, that you know, to an individual person that you will be saved, you will be uh, vindicated or whatever. It's a, a corporate promise to the nation. Which is not to say that we don't have a personal God that loves us and knows us by name and cares for us uh, as we are. But the ultimate concern is for community for the nation, for, the, for the, the corporate entity of the people. The ultimate concern is for everybody, for the gathered people. And that's why there's so much in the Bible that's about compassion and mercy and forgiveness. Why there's so much about feeding the hungry and taking care of the widows and taking care of the orphans. It's this constant call to a communal sensibility and a community sensibility. And not just to take care of those who need to be taken care of, but there's also in, in Scripture this constant call to also reform the society, the social structures, the religious structures, the political structures that lead to people being hungry so, uh, or being poor or being left on the margins. There's this call to recreate the community, to recreate the society so that people are not uh, allowed into poverty or forced into poverty or bankruptcy or hungry, hunger or, or homelessness. You know, so there's a call to charity and a call that charity is, is great and a good thing to do, part of what we're called to do, but a greater call that justice, justice is what God wants from us. Concern for the whole people, for everyone. And then there is also in Joel this promise that God will pour out the Spirit on all flesh. On all flesh. I think we can take it as some fulfillment of that on that first day of Pentecost when the Spirit came onto the disciples and all those people gathered that we think of as the, as the birth of the church, uh, but also the Spirit that we get in baptism. Uh, you know, this is the age that we live in, the age of the Spirit since the beginning of the church, is the age of the Spirit. And it's a Spirit to all flesh, all flesh, all people, especially, uh, and Joel names, those who are powerless. The Spirit will come even on those, the women, children, the old, even the slaves will get the Spirit. 
And I think there is in here still this sense that we're only talking about Israel, promise that the Spirit will come in all flesh if you're Jewish, uh, if you are part of the people of, of Israel. But uh, since the beginning of the church, there has been this constant expansion of that idea that it's not just to these particular people. But really, this is a promise for all of humanity. We have been pushing the boundaries of that prophetic promise. In the early church, it was to include the Gentiles and the foreigners uh, into the church. And as time has gone on, to believe that you know, the, the slaves and foreigners all over the world, all people, are part of this vision. As we have been struggling with this question, if the Spirit, if God can send the Spirit on all flesh, then we have this struggle. Who can speak for God? Or who may God speak through? Who may God be speaking through? Can God speak through atheists? Can God speak through Muslims or Buddhists? Can God speak through children or the mentally ill or the mentally challenged? Who can God speak through? Who might we need to listen to? Eh, we still, uh, with all the progress that the church has made, there are still those who seem to believe that God cannot speak through women or that God cannot speak through our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters or that God cannot speak through foreigners, uh, let alone whether or not God can speak through non-Christians. Uh, there's still this struggle, can God even speak through all Christians? Uh, I think they can I think God can do whatever God wants. So might God be uh, speaking through non-Christians or through the marginalized Christians? Where is God's voice? Where might God be speaking? Through whom might God be speaking? And what might God be saying to us through them? Now, I kind of follow some of the discussion that some atheists uh, and other critiquers of religion and critiquers uh, of the church have to say. And some of their critiques, I, I think, are unfair uh, and not worth giving a lot of weight to. I think those that just critique it by saying anyone who's religious is a moron, I don't think we need to listen to that critique. But there are many who have, I think, legitimate critiques of the church and of religion. And many of these people know their scripture. Even though they're not believers, they know the scripture or they at least know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And what Jesus said. And they look at the church and they go, people aren't living like the guy they say they're following told them to live. And so, of course, they might look at us and go, eh, why would I want to join that group of people? They don't even follow the guy they say that they're following. And so what they might be saying to us, what I think they are saying to us is, yeah, calm down. Don't be so haughty. Don't be so... I don't know, obnoxious about the rightness of your faith versus any other kind of belief. I think they're saying don't be so, don't be narrow, don't be afraid of science, include more people in your sphere of who you believe God loves. Be more generous, more just, more merciful, less dogmatic, less doctrinal, less worried about your theology and your beliefs, more worried about your neighbors. Spread the love. Be more loving. I think that's a legitimate critique of the church and something we ought to listen to. And that's the critique that Jesus lobs at the Pharisee. 
in this passage. The Pharisee is just very self-important and sure of, of himself and his own righteousness. He's looked out at the people that he thinks are the sinners, and he says, well, I'm better than them, therefore I'm as good as can be. I'm not a, an adulterer or a thief, a thief or a, a rogue or a tax collector, therefore I'm great. I give a tenth of my income, I tithe to the synagogue, I fast twice a week. How wonderful am I, God? Thank you for making me so wonderfully excellent. And such a good example to this uh, idiot, this tax collector. Thank you for letting him see what we're supposed to be like. And Jesus kind of tears him down here. He says, that's not the way to be. Be more like the guy that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The one that doesn't even want to look up to heaven, who looks down. I think God would rather have a humble sinner with compassion or even a humble non-believer with compassion than an obnoxious believer. The one who can ask, God, have mercy on me, is likely the one who's willing and ready to have mercy on others. And that's what God wants. And sometimes people have, have asked what our, our church believes, or they're asking about Plymouth, you know, what does this congregation believe, or what does the United Church of Christ believe? Uh, and we often do talk about beliefs. And beliefs are certainly uh, important, but I don't think, I don't think they're the greatest uh, part of the faith the specifics of, of what we believe, but I'll, I'll answer them and I'll say, well, we, we trust in scripture, but we don't take it literally. We trust in science. Uh, you know, we, we believe that what science reveals is, is true and accurate, and we in the UCC and Plymouth are open to all sorts of people. We don't uh, exclude anyone from our midst. We don't think that anyone ought to be denied access to the table. We're inclusive. Uh, and we follow Jesus. We believe in the resurrection. We are Trinitarian for the most part. We're a bottom-up denomination, not a top-down. You know, it's not the top telling us what to believe. But we as a people trying to come to a consensus and talking with each other uh, about what we believe, that we're a big tent church trying to embrace the world. We have testimonies of faith, not tests of faith. Uh, and that's often a lot more than anyone really wants to hear. Because it's hard to explain when you have a church that doesn't have a doctrine or a dogma that you can't say, we believe this. That's not who we are. We don't have this set of beliefs. So then I say, but ultimately what we really believe, and this is a big part of the Reformed uh, tradition, but certainly in the United Church of Christ, what we believe, as much as anyone can say that we believe in something, we believe first that what Jesus said and did is what truly matters. Not a set of propositions or abstract beliefs, but what Jesus told us to do and the example that Jesus gave us. That's my religion and, and my faith. <clears throat> and one reason I'm not so big on creeds uh, or dogma, I think they're important. They're historical artifacts, uh, and these creeds have been developed over the years as kind of snapshots of what the church believed at the time, what was important, and actually during the baptism, we're going to say uh, one of those old and ancient creeds. Uh, not to say that we have to believe everything in there. As the United Church of Christ, we're free to disbelieve uh, where we wish. 
but, but they're important. But I, the thing that really bugs me about so many of the creeds is they have this wonderful liturgy in the beginning, this poetry about what God has done in creation and, uh, and God's seeing over all the world. And then it comes up to Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. And then it jumps immediately to the crucifixion and the beginning of the church. So again, he was born of the Virgin Mary and was crucified by Pilate. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like 27, 30 years of Jesus' life. What about that? Where's that in the creeds? That so rarely shows up what Jesus told us to do. We have things that we believe about Jesus, but nothing, what, what do we believe about what Jesus told us to do? And who we, ought, uh, who we are supposed to be? And what Jesus said most is to love your neighbors, be fair, lift up the poor, do right by the weak, resist evil, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, do all these uh, good things, take care of your neighbor. It's an outward faith, not an inward faith about what we believe, but an outward faith about who we are, what we do, how we live in our community. I like to say that what we believe is that what Jesus said and showed us to do is far more important than any of the particulars of our faith whether we believe in consubstantiation or some substantia I can't remember the other word now. Transubstantiation. Thank you. I knew there'd be a theologian out there that would have that word. Or other, it doesn't matter. I think really what matters is are we living in love as Jesus told us to do? We don't believe so much as just live and act. And so we as Christians can look out at our broken world. We can look at the poor those who are, are, are trapped in um, sex trafficking or slavery, and there's a lot of that that still goes on. That's a very real thing, even in the United States. Look out at those who are underemployed, look at the war-torn, look at all the geniuses and talented people who never get a chance to show their genius or their talent because they're killed as children or they don't have access to schools or the resources they need for that genius to, to bloom. We look out at environmental destruction, at the injustice of people's retirements being wiped out while their CEOs get billions in bonuses. Look out at all this uh, obsession with individualism, my wants over the community's needs, personal wants, taking a priority over things, this lack of consensus, toxic politics, whatever. We look out at, at the broken parts of the world and declare this is not the world that God imagines. We know that because that's what Jesus said. Jesus showed us what it ought to look like. We are the holders of that sacred story and of God's imagination. Not that we're the only ones. God can speak through whoever God wants. But certainly we as the church have a special responsibility to hold that message and to share that message, to embrace it, to use it wisely, and to make it a reality. And we can live it as the antidote to all that anxiety and fear and uh, bad stuff going on out in the world. We can live this as the antidote to the suffering. And starting with the humility to pray ourselves into God's hands. God, have mercy on me. Sinner. Amen.
And that is the good news for this day and for all days. Thank you again for listening to the Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth podcast. If you are in the Eau Claire area, we especially invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. And I invite you also to check out our website at pcucc.com for upcoming events and special worship services. From Plymouth United Church of Christ, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, this is Pastor David. Thank you for spending this time with us. May God bless you.